Well, medieval map makers used to put the words, there be dragons, on the edges of their maps. Because that was the point in the map in which, you know, the knowledge had basically ended, and now speculation began. And they wanted to remind us that there were, you know, beyond that border, there was hopefully just an unexplained, unknown situation, but that it could also potentially be very dangerous beyond that point. But there were some map makers, some cartographers in that time, that made maps that added a, some, something a little bit extra, besides the dragons and the warning. In the Salter map, which was a map that was made in 1250, that cartographer added not only some of the Psalms to his map, along with the dragons, but he also included the image of Christ. Because he wanted to remind us that yes, things may be dangerous and difficult beyond what we know about what's out there in our world, but that Jesus would be there with us. And today we've come to a point where uh, we're going to be marching way past what we know, and what we understand. We're going to pass those borders of knowledge and understanding and experience to places that are unknown to us, where there very well might be dragons in our lives. Because he's brought us to Psalm 23.4. Psalm 23.4 says this, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Today we're going to talk honestly about those days that God asks us to live with the fearful dragons and come face to face with dangerous and difficult and dark and scary things. And even though David's pen is going to tell us that these uncertainties are sure, he's also going to give us a gigantic shot of hope and confidence because he's going to tell us that even on our dark days when we're navigating difficult things, that Jesus is going to be beside us. So don't miss this. God wants you to embrace your next difficult encounter knowing that he's beside you and that he has everything you need to fight the dragons that you will face. And just because you don't know what's outside the edges of your comfort zone, he does, and he's there with you. Now, our passage begins, and I would ask you to open Psalm 23. Have it on your paper Bible, on your device. Have it right there in front of you for the whole rest of the time. It's pretty much the only place we're going to go, pretty much. It says, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. Now, so far, the Good Shepherd has taken us to green pastures and still waters, and the whole point of the first message was that God's going to provide, as our Good Shepherd, everything we need. It was this great encouraging message about all these wonderful things that the shepherd gives us in Psalm 1, 1 to 3, or 23, 1 to 3. But all of a sudden now, he is making a darker turn. He's taking us down a more sinister path instead of those peaceful waters. And that's actually what the valley of the shadow of death means. It means deep and utter darkness. Plain and simple. Now, I don't know what your experience is with real darkness. If you grew up in Southern California like I did, well, frankly, dark is not really dark. We, we can't find a place that's really dark here. Too many people, too much light pollution, right? But I took a road trip when I was a kid. My dad was faithful to 
throw us in the back of those station wagons, right, with the well in the back that you waved at the truck drivers. And we got in that, and we drove across the United States. And one place that we visited on our travels was a place called Mammoth Caves in Kentucky. And uh, that was the place that I learned what darkness really is. You know, I loved exploring the paths and running around through the windy paths and looking at the stalactites and the stalagmites, and no, I don't know the difference, and in my world, it doesn't matter. Makes no difference. And I loved hearing my voice echo off, but at one point, our tour guide gathered us all together, so we were right surrounding them, and he said, okay, now I want you to turn off all your lights. That's when I understood what darkness is. It's truly the only time in my life I've understood what darkness is. Because my, I put my 11-year-old hand in front of my face, and I could see absolutely nothing. And you know that the first thing I wanted to do was flip that light back on. It felt safer to know what was around me or what was coming, right? Didn't feel safe in the darkness. I'm not a fan of darkness. You know, I, I don't know many people who are. It's eerie. It's oppressive. And it's, therefore, a great metaphor for the valley of the shadow of death. Because darkness is what it's, frankly, all about there. But I know that um, our darkness isn't always physical, right? The darkness that you've experienced in your life, the valleys of the shadow of death you've had, it's not always physical like it was for me in Mammoth Caves. It is sometimes a health crisis and it's physical, but other times it's relational catastrophe. It's financial difficulty. It's spiritual disappointment could be so many different things, but he's going to be with us no matter what the darkness is that we face. David has had his fair share of it, right? When he was a young shepherd boy, he had to fight off both bears and wolves and lions defending his sheep. He's also stood in the shadow of the greatest and biggest and tallest and baddest soldier there was in Goliath. He spent years of his life being hunted down mercilessly by his mentor and father-in-law. And you know, as kids, right? A lot of problems there. And one of them even ran him out of town. Feared for his life from one of his children. He's had a lot of darkness. So he is a man who is perfectly equipped to take us into it and to teach us and to help us and to remind us of how good the shepherd is. Because in his adversity, David learned to trust the shepherd, and he's going to be our teacher today. Now, as I said, the shepherd himself uh, led us to those green pastures and still waters, and now we're going to take this dark turn. But this course direction um, is not a mistake. Whatever it is that your darkness is or has been in the past, it's not a mistake. God led you there into that on purpose. And that's where point number one is going to go because point number one is be confident God leads you. Be confident God leads you. And I plan to prove that to you from Psalm 23, 4. David wants us to know that even though God leads us into our blackest night, it's going to be okay because he knows where he's going and he took you there. And it's an interesting thought, really. But if you glance back up, because you have Psalm 23 open, if you glance back up to verse 3, where we left him was that we said he leads us in paths of righteousness. And we simplified that by saying he leads us in right paths. 
now the right path is fraught with danger. Hmm. Why would that be? Why don't those right paths always lead to green pastures and beside still waters? Well, experts who are experts on shepherd things tell us that so far, David has been taking us through the journey that a sheep and a shepherd take in the springtime of the year. And that as the days get longer and the sun gets hotter, like it finally is outside here, that the sheep have eaten up all the tender young grass that had come out in the springtime for them to enjoy. They're out of food. So the good shepherd is going to have to take them a place where they can have abundant food. And after the snow melts and the ice is gone, the best place to get an abundance of food is on the top of the mountain. The shepherd is now going to lead his flock up to the top of the mountain. And he knows that when they get there, it's going to be so worth it. That time on the mountain time with the shepherd is going to be like no other. It's actually the only time of the year where the sheep and the shepherd spend every moment, 24-7, together and alone. In the sense that there are no other flocks nearby. There's no other shepherd that's bringing his flock into that pen They get this time on the mountain time just with him, and it's very special, and their relationship will be better than it's ever been. But to get there, you have to go up a really tall, tough, difficult climb, and that's where he's heading them. But an intimacy will develop on the mountaintop that was never there before after they make their way through these challenges. Well, the first challenge is actually the path itself. The path that the sheep have to take is narrow and windy and covered with rocks, loose rocks. Think of the path cutting through to take you up to a mountain. On one side, there's usually a steep cliff, right? Because you're climbing. And on the other side, there's all these rocks and the potential for rock slide is there every minute as they're making their way up the path. On one of my trips to Israel, our bus that the tour guides took us on They decided one day to take us on this treacherous path. It was right outside the city of Jerusalem. And if you've ever been on a bus on a windy road, you know what I'm thinking of, right? You're going, and here's the road, and you're like, whoa. You're looking down in a chasm, and you're thinking, what? Okay, Highway 18 to go to Big Bear is nothing compared to this place right outside Jerusalem. When you look out the window, you're looking at this windy path, which we were told by our tour guide is the actual path that they used to take from Jerusalem to Jericho. Does that sound familiar? If you know the story of the Good Samaritan, that's where it was. For centuries, people took that path, and our bus took that path. And you could totally see why it would be horrible for a Levite or a priest to leave a bleeding man on that path. There's no way he was going to survive. We were a little nervous, and we were in a, you know, air-conditioned, fully equipped tour bus looking over the side. But what you also may not know is that this is David's backyard. No, he didn't grow up in Jerusalem. He grew up in Bethlehem, but Bethlehem is only six miles. I didn't do the research, but I'm thinking Mission Viejo, maybe? It's pretty much David's backyard. He was a shepherd. He took his sheep all over. He potentially had already been in this chasm, this deep valley, or one like it. This may even have been the inspiration for these very words that he wrote in Psalm 23, the valley of the shadow of death. So you got to picture it like that, okay? This path is treacherous. Another challenge that sheep face as they're going up the mountain is the challenge of water. 
because storms come all the time. Think of spring and early summer and how much a deluge of water comes with those thunderstorms. That water can very easily wash them off the path or fill up those canyons. Rock slides and flash floods are constant dangers for the sheep. And even though uh, water is something we would go, well, yes, but sheep need water. This is great. They have abundant water. Yeah, but so do all their predators. So yes, there might be abundant water, and they might actually go over and you know, get a cool drink where the storm is over. All the predators are around them in the shadowy crevices just waiting for an unprotected sheep. So the water brings its own challenges, as well as if the sheep get wet, if they don't get into shelter, they get chilled, they can get pneumonia. So there's a lot of dangers of the storms and the water. But there's a great benefit to anyone who has a good shepherd as their leader, because a good shepherd always does his homework. A good shepherd is familiar with every path. He's familiar with every bend in the river. He's familiar with every predator they might meet on the way, because he's done his homework and He's gone ahead of them. And you have a good shepherd like that too. He knows everything you're going to face and he knows all the the right paths to take and tools. He knows what enemies you will face. He knows everything about it because he has done his homework and he can see what you're going to come up against. So we need to be confident because he leads us. And don't forget that the verse says, even though I walk. Okay, well, let me ask you a question. What's the what's the thing you want to do when you hit a valley of the shadow of death? Most of us want to curl up in our bed, put on sad music, have a half a gallon of ice cream, and sit. Any of you want to walk? No, no one wants to walk. When you're in a terrible, deep darkness, bad place, you just want to curl up and be alone and cry. He says you're supposed to walk. It's the last thing you want to do, but the very first application of this message is going to be that we have to get up and walk. We cannot sit down and quit. That's what you want to do, but it says, even though I walk, there's going to be time to rest on the mountain with the shepherd, ladies. But for now, we walk. It's what we're called to do. Now, many have turned to this psalm for comfort as they face their actual physical death, and it is the greatest for that, right? It provides that. It is an awesome verse to go to when you're facing your own physical death. But I don't think that was all of David's intention. It says that it's called the valley of the shadow of death. So it's not really death. It's the shadow, because the shadow's not real. The shadow is a symbol, maybe, of death. But if you're a real follower of Christ, death can never really have a hold over you in the same way that it does over others. Jesus died. Jesus rose again. And so your death, even as you, even if you're facing it, is something that you shouldn't fear because the moment you step from this side to the other, you're with him forever. You'll never look at death the same as your neighbor does. For now, I want you to remember, not only are you going to get to the other side and you're going to see him face to face, we're going to do that next message, but I want you to ponder the words of Charles Spurgeon. I thought this was so good. He said, we need to remember that death is not the house, it's the porch. 
We think of death as the destination, but it's not. It's just the porch that makes us enter in to the perfect place we have with Jesus forever. Death is not the house, it's the porch. I don't know what your valley of the shadow of death looks like. For some of you, maybe it was the day your boss said, turn in your keys, empty your desk, you're done. For some of you, it was the day the doctor said, you're going to have a child and this child's never going to be normal. I've heard that one. Maybe it was your husband sitting across the table from you saying, I don't love you anymore. And for some of you, it's a child who you raised in the things of the Lord, and you know they understand the truth, and they even spoke the truth when they were younger, and now they want nothing to do with him or you. I don't know what your darkness looks like, but I can promise you that your good shepherd, as hard as it is to swallow, chose that for you, and that he will lead you through it. Remember, it says, even though I walk, what's the next word? Through, right? Even though I walk through, you're going to get to the other side. We're going to walk through it. As one man put it, whose name was J.R. Miller, he chose this path for me, the well he knew that thorns would pierce my feet, knew how the brambles would obstruct the way, knew all the hidden dangers I would meet, knew how my faith would falter day by day, and still my whisper echoes, yes, I see, this path is best for me. He chose this path for me, why need I more? This better truth to know that all along this strange, bewildering way, over rocky steps where dark rivers flow, his mighty arm will bear me all my days. A, a few steps more and I shall see, this path is best for me. We need to be confident because our good shepherd, God, he leads us there. I'm glad it doesn't stop there, though, because there's more encouragement in Psalm 23, 4. It goes on to say, I will not fear. I will fear no evil, sorry, for you are with me. I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Now, the dictionary defines fear as an unpleasant emotion that happens when we think someone or something is dangerous. It's an unpleasant emotion that happens when we think that something or someone is dangerous. And how we base, basically describe this path so far proves that to be true, right? It's all yucky stuff, bad stuff. No one wants this stuff. No one signed up for the stuff that we've described so far. But this part of the verse says that we encounter the really tough stuff. It's okay because he's beside us, because he's with us. That's where we're going to get our second point. This one is be comforted. God won't leave you. Be comforted. God won't leave you. Remember, I will fear no evil for you are with me. No matter how hard it is and how bad you feel, God will never leave you, ladies. And let's face it, we talked about this last time I was with you, but if uh, the Lord is your shepherd and you are a real Christian, then uh, your worst fear has already been taken care of. In John 10, 27 to 29, Jesus promised you something if you are his follower. 
He promised you that no matter what happens or how difficult your life gets, that nothing will ever be able to take you from his hand. No circumstance, no thing, no sin, no person, it says in that passage, will be able to snatch you from his hand. Never, ever, ever. You are completely safe with him. Nothing's going to get you. He's going with you, and so you're not going anywhere. David shows us how profound this promise is because he does something different right here, right at this point of this verse. He changes from third person to second. Did you see it? He goes from talking about the shepherd to talking to the shepherd right here in this phrase. I will fear no evil for not he is with me, but you are with me. He's now talking to God. He's changed the signal. I'm talking to you, God. You are with me. It is a profound and important change. When we're tempted to be afraid, all we have to do is run to the shepherd, and he will relieve our fears instantly. And I know that because when I was in Mammoth Caves, I can tell you, even though I was a tomboy, I was the kid in your family who was always out with the boys playing well, in our days, it was bombardier or something called worse than that. <clears throat> uh, they call it dodgeball now, but it was called other things in the past. And uh, I was the one out there doing that, playing kickball, climbing trees, fighting with the boys, racing them. That was me. So in Mammoth Caves, I was like, yes, freedom, until the darkness, right? As I explained to you already, but you know what I wanted to do the instant that it got dark? I wanted to know where my dad was. <laughs> And I was like feeling around, where's dad, where's dad? I have a lot of siblings. So I was like, where, wait, let me get over there. I want to be right next to dad because I need dad to hold my hand. That's what I wanted in the darkness. I wanted to be next to my father because that was the safe spot. He's there. I will fear no evil because you are with me. Well, experts tell us that when a shepherd leads his sheep, to the green pastures and the still waters, he's normally out in front, more like a drum major. And they're like, okay, come on, follow me, follow me. But when he turns to this dark path, he stands among them. Think of pictures you've seen of sheep and shepherd where the shepherd looks like he's totally swarmed by sheep. That's much more how he leads them when you hit the valley of the shadow of death. He is among them, right next to them. And the sheep innately seem to understand that their security depends on their proximity to the shepherd. How close are you to the shepherd? You are the safest ones the closer you are to him. Even in the fiercest storm, you're safe if he's nearby, if he's next to you. Now, the fact that the shepherd walks with us is very wonderful and great comfort. And we talked about how great it is to get to the destination on the mountaintop. But I'm here to tell you, and I know many of you would say the same, that when you're going up the horrible, dark, rocky path, hmm, your relationship with the shepherd changes. It's not just on the mountaintop that you develop a closeness that you've never had before. It's the journey to get there. How many of you have been in the darkness and you've realized how your connection to the Lord is greater than it's ever been in your life as you journeyed through it? with your hand in his. It changes your relationship with the shepherd. I love what this one man said. He was caught in Hurricane Sandy, which you know happened maybe a decade ago on the East Coast. But when the rescuers came to get him in his broken up home, this is what he said. He said, sometimes you have to lose the roof 
in order to see the stars. Yep, it's true, isn't it? We see the blessings when our comfortable life and normal protections have disappeared. And for the Christian, the number one blessing in the valley of the shadow of death is him. It's the great shepherd. He is the one who is your biggest blessing when you're going through your darkest night. So David wants us to look at the stars instead of the darkness. And in a room like this, I know it represents all kinds of dark places that you all have been. And I know that you would tell us how the Lord met you in the midst of the darkness and how he strengthened you and how he comforted you and how you didn't have to wait till you got to the other side, but how he was really, really there for you in a way you can't even put into words the peace that you had when you were in the middle of it. You didn't have to escape it to know the comfort of the good shepherd, did you? He was right there on your worst days. Now, um, Paul describes what this peace, this phenomenon in the midst of trouble is like when he wrote Philippians 4, 5. You don't have to turn there, but he encouraged us by telling us that we should let our reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Because even in the valley of the shadow of death, we can be calm and at peace and reasonable and not running around with chickens with our heads cut off because we're with the shepherd. And I know that some of you have been through some of the most horrific things, way worse than what I can imagine and what I myself have experienced. And I know that you would eagerly tell me that you are thankful for the darkness. You would even sign up to do it again because of the closeness and the relationship that you built with the shepherd in those days. One writer said it like this, the darker the shadow, the closer the Lord. Job understood that. In God's sovereignty, we just finished reading that in our daily Bible reading a few days back. But at the end of Job's journey, of course, losing everything, but then having that whole place where he was kind of stumbling and kind of getting a little snarky with God, right? Kind of being a little accusatory to God. He gets to the very end with the schooling that God gives him right at the end of the book. And this is what Job says, Job 42, 5. He says, I have heard of you, God, by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. And a lot of us could testify to that. We knew a lot about God, but we knew God in the valley of the shadow of death. We experienced him in a different way because we've never known the faithfulness and goodness of God like we see it in the midst of the darkness. But some of you are still, you're not there. You're still like, yeah, 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 but, yeah, but, yeah, but. I, I just can't believe what you're saying. I don't, I don't get it, and I don't, I don't want any of what you're saying, and I don't believe you. Well, I want to give you a couple examples of people in Scripture that God was faithfully with in the midst of their darkness. Just write the references down. The first one is in Genesis 28, 15. This is where God assures Jacob. We don't talk much about Jacob, but in this passage, God is going to assure Jacob, who, by the way, has just done something really bad and stolen Esau's blessing. And now Esau's out for blood and chasing him down. This is what God says to him, to Jacob, the one who did all those bad things. I am with you, and I will keep you wherever you go and bring you back to this land. 
for I will not leave you until I have done what I promised you. Hmm. In Joshua, God is going to commit himself to Joshua. The big time leader Moses is now dead. Joshua is like, great. Now I got to walk in the promised land and meet all, all the enemies face to face. Moses is not here anymore. And this is what God promised him in Joshua 1.5. No man shall be able to stand before you all the days of your life. Just as I was with Moses, so I will be with you and I will not leave you or forsake you. And then in Isaiah 41.10, this time God is talking to the nation of Israel. No, they are not going into captivity yet, but things are getting bad, and the Assyrians and the Babylonians are against them, and this is what God says. Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God, Israel. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. And he did. And this one's for us. Matthew 28.20. We never quote this verse. We quote the Great Commission all the time, but these are the next words out of his mouth after he tells us what we should be doing on this planet while we wait for him. He says, I am with you always, even to the end of the age, and he will be. Look at how faithful he's been to all these people who have gone before us. He will be faithful to us too. Then you say, yeah, I'm still not convinced though. I don't know how to do it. I don't know how to get through the darkness with the kind of confidence you're describing. I have a couple applications for you. One, I already mentioned to you, get up and walk, right? We already talked about that. That was in the first phrase. I have two more in this phrase in Psalm 23, 4. And the first one comes from exactly what David's doing in this moment. He says, I will not fear for you are with me. What? What's he doing? He's talking to himself. He's telling himself the truth. He's speaking the truth into his heart. Our application for that is we need to read our Bibles more. We need to meditate on God's truth. We need to repeat the truth to ourselves in the valley of the shadow of death. When you're afraid, when you don't know what's ahead, when you're sure there's a dragon around the next corner, repeat the truths of God to yourself. Here's a few of them. You just write the references down, and I'm going to hopefully, with feeling, carefully say them for you, for to ponder. The first one is in Psalm 46, 1. Now listen to what it says. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. The next is Isaiah 43, 1 and 2. It says, fear not. For I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through fire, you shall not be burned. And the flame shall not consume you. And here's the last one. There are hundreds more in your Bible. Psalm 16, 8. Listen to this one. I have set the Lord always before me. Because he is at my right hand, I shall not be shaken. Like I said, there's many more. But take these truths and say them to yourself. Sometimes you have to say them to yourself over and over and over again. I know because in the darkness that I've experienced in my life, I've kept verses like this in my pocket. And sometimes, I'm not kidding you, I had to say them 12 times out loud. 
in order to step out of my car and go to that next baby shower. After God had said no to me and my husband, 80, and that's not an exaggeration, 80 times he said no. For the three, he said yes. And I'd have to step out and go to another baby shower of some of you and rejoice with you that God had given you what you had asked for, even though he hadn't given me that. And I would have to literally say words like this over and over until I could step out of my car and be there for you with a smile on my face and truly in my heart rejoice that you had the, your heart's desire. I know it works. Say these words out loud to yourself. Let them go through your ears and down into your heart. That's what David did. That's what I would tell you to do. Another thing, and this is just a no-brainer, it's not from this text, but you know it's true, you need to ask God for help. That's the, the second application from this part. Ask God for help. You need to pray, pray, pray. Not just once a day in your quiet time, not just before every meal. You need to pray all the time. In the middle of the darkness, cry out to God and ask him for help. Sometimes you have to do that every 10 minutes. You cannot make it through 10 more minutes of that baby shower or 10 more minutes of that bridal shower if you've been waiting for this husband forever and now it's your best friend and you're her maid of honor. You might have to pray every five minutes to be able to do what you need to do. Remember we quoted Philippians 4, 5, let your reasonableness be known to everyone the Lord is near. That calm and that peace, but the next verse, one right after it, you know it. Philippians 4, 6 says, don't be anxious about anything, but pray about everything, right? How we find that peace and that reasonableness is by making our requests known to God. Ask for what you need from the midst of the valley of the shadow of death. It reminds me of a three-year-old boy who thought he was old enough to go to the bathroom. If you've raised children, you know there's that moment they're like, yes, I can do it on my own. And this little boy went charging up the stairs, opened the bathroom door, closed it behind him, locked it, did his business. Then, yay, he washed his hands on the way out. He felt so good. He was so self-sufficient until he got to the door. And he couldn't unlock the door. Trying to get the lock, and he, with his little three-year-old strength, he couldn't get the door unlocked. That little tiny knob just wouldn't come unlocked. And the little boy began to panic, as you and I do in the midst of our darkness, right? And of course, in his panic, the only thing he could think of is, what if I have to spend the rest of my life in the bathroom? Now, we think that's silly, but you, have you ever had that thought? In the midst of your darkness? What if I never get out of this? What if I have this condition for the rest of my life? What if my child never becomes a Christian? What if, what if? There's always the what ifs, right? He panicked. And then he started to scream, which I'm hoping that you wouldn't be screaming. But he started to scream, and of course, his mother comes running because the neighbors can hear, and she comes running. What's happened? What's happened? Did you fall? Did you, did you crack your head open? Are you all right? What can I do? And he's like, help me. I can't get out. I can't get the door open. Well, unbeknownst to him, his dad had run down the stairs, gone to the garage, gotten the ladder, and propped it up right underneath the bathroom window. And with his, whatever, 25, 30-year-old strength, he climbed up that ladder, pried the window open, and climbed through. He walked through the bathroom, unlocked the door, opened it, and the little boy said, thanks, Dad, as he ran out to play. Now, don't we all wish that's exactly what happened? when we cry out to our good shepherd? 
but he comes in, he unlocks that prison that we're in, we're released, and we run out to play. That's what we all want, right? Is that what happens every time? No. Many of you know that you have begged God for him to fix your marriage over and over, and it hasn't happened. Or you've begged him to save that rebellious child who has now chosen a whole different lifestyle, and it doesn't change. Or you have this financial difficulty, and it's bringing you to your knees all the time, and it never gets resolved. You know sometimes he doesn't unlock the door and let you out to play. Sometimes, instead, he climbs in the window, and he sits down next to you. He says, let's sit here a while. And he's just with you on the bathroom floor as you weep, as you cry, as you wait. Most of the time, we think it's the best thing possible for him to let us out. But sometimes it's much more important for us to sit on the floor with him and get to know him in a different way. I know our first response is to think, if you love me, God, you will unlock this door. But it's not always true. It's not the best thing for us. So I would urge you to sit there and seize the moment when he says, come sit. Come sit with me a while. Let's spend some time together. Well, that's a hard season, isn't it? But knowing that he's with you makes it a whole lot better. Whether he brings a swift end to your trial or he gives you the relief of his presence, either way, we need not fear because we can endure anything when we slip our hand into his. But as an added bonus here in Psalm 23, he even doesn't end there because verse 4 goes on to tell us that not only is he with us, but he's armed to the teeth. And good parents, they do more than just read a bedtime story and uh, pray with a child and tuck them in. Good parents also go around and make sure all the doors are locked. Good parents also listen out for threats in the night and jump up should there be some trouble in their household while their children are asleep. This element, God's going to tell us not to fear because he's got one more thing going for him here as our good shepherd. And that is that it continues and it says, your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Now, the rod and the staff, these are the things that a shepherd uses to protect his sheep. And that's where we're going to get point number three. Number three is be courageous. God defends you. Be courageous. God defends you. We can breathe easier because when the storm rages around us, we know that God has everything he needs to fight whatever comes at us. Now, traditionally, the shepherd would only carry a couple things. He would carry a very minimum uh, food and water, a few first aid items, and the rod and the staff. That's it. That's all he would carry with him. And uh, I want you to think the, the rod is like a short, fat stick with a knob on one end. If you can think of a policeman's billy club, that's what a rod is like. And the shepherd has become, over time, very proficient at swinging that with speed and accuracy and hurling it at an enemy, at a predator, and taking him out. But it starts when the shepherd is in training and is a young boy and, or young girl, I guess, in our day and age. And uh, he will be finding the perfect sapling tree, the perfect young tree, to craft his 
rod from. He's going to look for this perfect tree, and when it, the tree hits the ground in the dirt, there's a little bulbous part that grows, a little round bulbous part. And he will carefully dig out that little sapling tree, and now he'll have this hunk of wood. And he will slowly but surely shape it and sand it so that that little bulb fits perfectly in his hand, fits the shape of his hand. Then he'll deal with crafting the rest of that rod. And all throughout his childhood, he will spend hour after hour in the backyard, whatever his backyard looks like, flinging that rod, maybe at the pole, maybe at the tree, maybe at the squirrel, right? And he's going to try to make sure that he knows how to be accurate with each and every throw, that it hits exactly what he's looking for it to hit. Because someday that rod is going to protect an entire flock of sheep. So he has to sit there as a young boy, almost like when your child was learning to throw a curveball or, or um, free, th- free throws, right, in the backyard, hour after hour. That's what the shepherd in training does. The valley of the shadow of death is a place where there are many enemies lurking, and we need the shepherd to hurl his rod at all those enemies. But in God's wisdom, sometimes he lets that rod hurl even into our lives. It happened to me once. I made a purchase fancy that, as I do often, and it was a pot for my house, and I thought it was going to be great, and I got it home, and it didn't work, so you know me. What did I do? I returned it, and I put it in the back of my car to take it back that day, and, you know, in the back of my SUV, and I just set it there. I don't know what I was thinking, but I just set it there and took Stephanie to school. The first turn, the pot falls over, bump, 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 rolls across, smash on the side, and I'm like, oh, bummer broke the pot. Well, can't return that one. And I didn't have time to see if the, the pot was broken or not. I just had to go on my way. She had to get to school. You know how that is. Sometimes you just can't deal with it right this minute. You'll get to it later. Well, that's what I did. I got to get to it later. Dropped her off. But now I'm in the La Paz parking lot, so I decided to pull over. I wonder what happened to my pot. So I get out, I open the back up, and I notice, huh, it's not broken. Yay, me, it's not broken. But I realized I was really stupid how I put that back in there. So I went to the front seat, I got my coat, I wrapped the pot up, I put it in the back seat, I put a seatbelt over it, I'm like, I'm ready to go, now it's safe. And then I took off out of the school, right, around the corner, and the very first thing I came across was a three-car collision, right there. And I knew it had just happened for three reasons. One, they were just getting out of their car. Two, they were simply starting to take pictures of this accident. And three, as you know, when you do school drop-off, there were no cars stacked up behind them quite yet. In 30 seconds, there would be 50 cars there, right? But um, I, so I knew what had just happened, and you know what I understood in that moment? God hurled that rod at that pot and knocked it over on my way to school so that I would pull aside and not be involved in that accident. It would have been me. Now, it wasn't life-threatening. It would have messed up my day for sure probably more than my day, but that wasn't God's plan for me that day. And I was thanking God for the rod he hurled into my life to make me pull up. At the moment, I thought it was, oh, get out, I've got to put that pot, put it in the seatbelt, you know, I was like all perturbed. And then I saw how God was kind to me when I came around the corner. But you know what? There's been lots of other enemies and valleys of the shadow of death that he did not spare me from. When his billy club, his rod just hung there on his belt, right? I already told you, years of infertility, twice. Tons of heartache, 
friends I've never seen again in ministry because of things that God allowed to happen. And then, of course, not having three perfectly healthy children. And God's rod just sat there on his belt, unused. He didn't, he didn't stop those enemies. He didn't stop those dark times. That was his plan for me. And he has plans for you too. And some of those include those dark times. Now, sadly, sometimes God also has to be more assertive and aggressive with us, and he uses the rod on us specifically. When you are about to step off the path, the good path that he has for you, sometimes his rod hurls right at your backside. When you're noticing that beautiful plant on the trail, it's lovely, but it's also poisonous. And he hurls the rod at you before you get a chance to chomp down on it. Or you're looking over the edge of that cliff. You're like, oh, that looks great. Let me get a selfie. And he throws the rod at you before you fall down the cliff, right? Sometimes he uses the rod on us, and we're quick to turn around, hopefully, when we feel it hit our backside. I hope that you're thankful for the sting of discipline that keeps you from trouble. It may not feel like it in the moment, but it is best for us because it keeps us from doing something stupid and falling off a cliff morally, financially, physically, spiritually, emotionally, relationally. He throws it so that we don't fall off a cliff, and I'm so grateful for it. We have a loving parent who is faithful to discipline us, and Hebrews 12, 10, and 11 tells us why. It says he disciplines us for our good that we may share his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. That was Hebrews 12, 10, and 11. We praise God for his divine spankings. But sometimes God's discipline of us isn't always just for us. Sometimes it's for those who will watch us, for those that will follow us, for those we have influence on. Because sheep are stupid animals. And a lot of times they just follow the tail in front of them. And frankly, sometimes people are a lot like that, and they just follow the tail in front of them into trouble. It happened once in Turkey. There was a flock of sheep. The shepherds were sitting there at their breakfast on a patio, and they were looking up on a hillside that was about two miles away where they had left their flock. Everything was good, and they were having their breakfast. And they glanced up there, and they noticed that one of the sheep walked over to the cliff and jumped off. Okay, that's weird. And then they watched one after the other, after the other, after the other, after the other. 1,500 sheep followed the tail in front of them and jumped to their deaths. It really happened. All because there was no shepherd there with his rod to curl at that one before he jumped off the cliff and followed all the rest. So sometimes God will discipline us to keep us from leading others astray. The rod has one more significant purpose, and that is that every night um, when they come into whatever the enclosure is where they're going to sleep, uh, the shepherd will take the rod and he will lay it over that entrance, and he will count the sheep, 32, 57, 84, until he's counted for every sheep. And occasionally he'll pull a sheep out of the lineup and he'll run his hands all over the sheep, pull the wool apart and touch its skin to make sure that there's no injuries, there's no disease. And in Psalm 139, 23, and 24, this passage is urging us to ask our good shepherd to do the same thing for us. 
It says, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. See if there's any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. I know it's scary, but it is a necessary part of our good shepherd's job. And when he wants to run his hands all over your life and look at everything with a fine-tooth comb, you need to joyfully submit to that. It's for your good when he asks to examine every little crevice in your life. He only wants what's best for you. But there is one more tool, and it's the staff. And you know the staff because it's much longer, and it has a big bend in the top of it, right? You see it on Christmas cards and things like that. That's the one you see the shepherd holding, the staff. Now, he uses the staff to defend his flock as well. And you can imagine it, right? It's got that big crook. How easy it would be for him to reach over and grab a sheep's foot and pull it out of a hole. They're walking along, and there's a gopher hole or a snake hole, which is even worse. And you can see where that little staff would just go, whoop, perfect. Another thing it's perfect for is when they're going up and there's bushes in the way, and he's able to take his staff and push all the branches out of the way so that the sheep can keep going, right? Another thing it's very good for is when they get to a grassy, you know, spot or maybe even to the top of the mountain, he takes that staff and he pounds down the tall grass, because who likes to hide in the tall grass? All kinds of predators like to hide in the tall grass. And when it's time for the flock to move on, the shepherd uses that staff even to tell him it's time to go. He sits it on the ground and he goes, thump, 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 and all the sheep can hear it. And they come running and they know it's time to go. All those things are things that the staff does. But we also know that enemies lurk at the edges of the flock. And that one of the sheep's most important jobs is keeping everybody together. Remember, we talked about it last time, don't be cast down, you know, far away from the sheep because you're going to be slim pickings that whatever else is out there is going to get you or you'll die cast down, right? Well, he will use that crook to grab those ones that are on the edge of the flock to get the stragglers to come back in, right, with that hook. And he also does, I think, a very cool thing with his staff. And that is that, let's say he has a very timid sheep or a rebellious sheep, either one. The shepherd will stand there and he'll put that little sheep right next to him. And then he puts his big walking stick, his big staff right on the outside of them. So it's shepherd, sheep, stick, right? And he's walking there and he will exert a little bit of pressure on the sheep. And the sheep will walk with him. He's walking those timid sheep or those rebellious sheep and keeping them really close by to him. Those are all the things that he can do with that staff. Because of these tools, the shepherd is equipped for everything that comes against his flock. One writer said, God offers more than a hug and a Kleenex for hurting people. Don't you like that? Aren't you glad that, I mean, I love it that God wants to snuggle up next to us and take care of us. But I am also so thankful that he has the right tools and he knows how to use them, and frankly, he does use them. In our day and age, we might have the tools, but half the time we don't use them. He actually will step in and use them when we need them. But now, of course, just <clears throat> because he's armed to the teeth does not mean that there's never a time when you might get bumped and bruised when he's fighting for you, or when he's rescuing you, for that matter. And it happened to a couple little girls. There were twin girls, and they were playing outside in the forest behind their house. And one of them inadvertently stepped into a bee's nest, an underground bee's nest. And of course, the bees came out and began stinging these two sisters. And the father heard them screaming and came running through the forest and grabbed up one under one arm and one under the other and ran away with them and got them away from the bees and rescued them. 
Do you know what? When they stopped running, the girls were bruised. They were bruised from their father's hands. And their clothes were torn. They were torn from running through the bushes as it was ripping their, their shorts and their clothing. And the thorns on those branches had scraped their legs and their arms, and they were pretty banged up. But it was way better than sitting out there unprotected with those bees. Potentially could have taken their lives. So don't be upset when God's rod and his staff are protecting you and you get a little banged up. It's going to happen when he fights for you sometimes. Don't get discouraged. Remember that in the end, in verse 5 and 6, we win. That's where we're going next time. No matter how banged up you are, we're going to win. It's going to be okay. Before we leave this point, I want to remind you that no matter how dark or how treacherous that valley is, it's not going to last forever. Remember, he said, we're going to walk through the valley. So just snuggle on up to your shepherd. He's going to fight for you till the end. And if you would, please turn with me quickly, if you can, to John 10. I told you we would almost be in Psalm 23 the whole time. This is the one verse I'm going to take you to, but I want you to see it with your own eyes. So quickly turn to John 10. We're going to skim over a few verses, 11 to 15. In the Gospel of John here, Jesus puts it this way. And I think it's so sweet that he talks about being our good shepherd and brings Psalm 23 and the Gospel together. In John 10, verse 11, he says, I am the good shepherd. That's Jesus speaking. And the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Verse 12 says, he was a hired hand who does not own the sheep, he sees the wolf coming and he leaves the sheep. Verse 13 says, that man flees because he's a hired hand and he cares nothing for the sheep. Verse 14 says, I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. And in verse 15, he says, and I lay down my life for the sheep. And you see, that's how a good shepherd is recognizable. It's because he has scars all over his body from protecting his sheep. Your good shepherd has them too. He's got scars in his hands. He's got scars on his feet. He's got scars on his side. And he's got them all across his brow. Because he fought for you. He literally laid down his life to protect you. Don't ever forget that. So you're going to have to start walking. You're going to have to repeat the truth. And you're going to have to cry out to him in the darkness. You're going to have to do all those things. But remember, he's going to fight for you. There's some very powerful words from Moses' mouth. I love it. In Exodus 14, 14, they're up against the Red Sea. And this is what Moses says. He says, the Lord will fight for you. You have only to be silent. So we need to be courageous because the Lord defends us. Now, there once was a scientist who was studying a little cocoon that had a butterfly inside of it. And this little cocoon was like, I don't know, moving around, bumping around on the table as he was examining it for a couple days and weeks. And he heard that helpless little creature in there struggling against its prison walls. And, and the scientist's heart went out to them. So the next day, he decided he would take his teeny tiny little pocket knife and he would just cut through the fragile wall of the cocoon. And he set the butterfly free. But he was amazed that it wasn't the creature that he expected it to be. It sat there on the table. It couldn't fly. It couldn't walk. It was ugly. It was helpless. 
And those beautiful wings that he expected, beautiful, colorful wings that he thought would be there, they weren't. They were these colorless, gross blobs. Why wasn't it beautiful? How come it couldn't soar? What was wrong with it? It had been released from its prison way too soon. You see, without the obstacles, that butterfly did not learn to fly. It did not develop as it should have been. And you know, in our prison walls, with our obstacles, with our valley of the shadow of death, sometimes we want to be released. But God is using that to shape and mold us, to make us beautiful, to make us exactly what he wants us to be when we come out the other side. Psalm 23 is very clear, though. No matter how much he allows us to struggle, that he will be with us and he will lead us out of it someday. So don't chafe against his will or his plan for your life. Be confident he leads you. Be comforted he won't leave you. And be courageous he defends you. Let's pray. Dear God, I'm so thankful that you don't leave us. There are so many challenges and so many um, valleys of the shadows of death in our walk through this life. And um, we can be confident because you're never going to take off on us. And you're going to use it for our good, just like the butterfly. And God, I do pray for those that are in a darkness right this minute and feel like, frankly, they can't even breathe and they don't even know how they got here today. God, I pray for those people in particular that they'd show up at their group and that our ladies would love on them and they would listen to them and they would hear them. And I pray that some of the rest of us would just be silent because that's not where God has us today and it's time for us to listen and be there for those who are. I do pray for our groups to be encouraging though and for us to say the right things, to talk about your faithfulness and your goodness that we have experienced in the valley of the shadow of death that he has taken us through. So whatever the perfect balance is for each group, God, I pray that you would help them find it. And I pray we would remember this the next time you turn us down a dangerous and dark path. We pray all this in Jesus' name.